thank you so much. It is such an honor to be here with Rebecca Fudo Kennedy and with Jackie Murray, both classics professors. So I want to introduce you all and the wonderful work that you're doing. Rebecca Fudo Kennedy is Associate Professor of Classical Studies at Denison University. She works on social and political history of ancient Greece, race, ethnicity, and immigration in the ancient Mediterranean, and the history of classics and scientific racism and white supremacism in the United States. She is currently writing Ancient Identities, Modern Politics for Johns Hopkins University Press. Jackie Murray is Associate Professor of Classics at the University of Kentucky. Her research focuses on Greek and Latin epic poetry, race and classics, and the reception of classics in African-American and Afro-Caribbean literature. She is currently working on multiple projects, including one on Du Bois and classics. She and Rebecca Fudo Kennedy are co-authoring a textbook on understanding race and antiquity and its modern impacts and legacies. And it is just such a pleasure to have you here on Classical Crossroads. You are, you know, kind of the perfect guest for um, what this podcast is all about. So what I'd like to do is to start out by asking each of you, could you tell me a little bit about your early education and the extent to which your early education did or did not um, incline you toward a career in classics? Whoever would like to start. (laughs) Mine's a short story. I had no early education in classics. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I went, well, I mean, I grew up in a predominantly poor, you know, immigrant working class um, neighborhood. It was was half black, half white Eastern European immigrants. It was not a very wealthy or prominent school district. And then when I was 12, I moved to San Diego. Um, My dad had remarried um, and I moved out there and I lived in what was a predominantly Filipino and Vietnamese. Vietnamese immigrant neighborhood. <laughs> so so um, it just wasn't, I mean, I think I read the Odyssey in ninth or 10th grade. And um, the only sort of classical education that I had was my senior year, I opted to take a AP art history course that a, one of the teachers taught on her own time and her own dime. <laughs> um, and an AP European history course that, again, this professor taught it sort of on his own volition. And um, it didn't do, it, it, it did a little bit of ancient, but more, it was more like, you know, you start the Renaissance and sort of move forward. And I remember watching the old 1980s Clash of the Titans, uh, you know, as a kid. And I think that like might be the like biggest exposure I had <laughs> until I got to college. <laughs> so I don't know if anything prepared me for my decision to become a classicist. <laughs> Interesting. And so was it all in public schools? Yeah, I've, I've, I've only ever gone to public uni- schools from kindergarten through my PhD. And Jackie, how about you? Well, I, I always trace back my interest in classics and specifically in my interest in Apollonius of Rhodes, Argonautica, what I actually look up to my dad traumatizing my brother and I by making us watch the Jason and the Argonauts. Uh, <laughs> I remember watching that one. 1963 <laughs> with, the, with the skeletons. Yeah, the Harryhausen one. I remember that. <laughs> and so, um, and so working out that trauma ever since. That's how I refer to it. Um, but, but, uh, I, I would identify with the fact that I always liked languages. I always thought when I was a little kid, I would be a, a language, a linguist. I was going to be learning all the languages because I wanted, um, all my, I want to have friends all over the world and wow. I wanted to be able to speak to them. So I wanted to have languages. Yeah. And so, um, but when, yeah, so in Canada, I'm from Canada. So in Canada, you learn French um, pretty early. And so I started off with French. And then um, when I, so my dad uh, was working, with the Jamaican government, like he's the uh, agriculture, whatever, 
something in Jamaica. <laughs> so we, 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 my dad took us back to school in Jamaica because school, in his mind, school is better in Jamaica. And, and I would tend to agree. Um, and so uh, I went to an all girls Catholic school in Jamaica, Immaculate Conception High School. Yay. Matt girls, <laughs> my peeps out there. Um, and uh, we had Latin because it's a Catholic school. We had Latin from, uh, I guess, grade seven um, on, and I really liked it. Um, some people hated it, but I I was one of the people who loved it. And so I always wanted to do Latin. Then when we moved back to Canada, I made sure that we found a public school that had Latin. And I insisted that my mom find me a school that had Latin. Um, because my parents got divorced and then my mom um, uh, moved back to Canada. And uh, so I insisted, I want to school with Latin. And so, um, yeah. And then, so I just had Latin in high school. But then when I went to university, um, didn't really occur to me that one could do Latin in university. Like, it just never occurred to me. Because uh, I was going to be a lawyer anyway, right? And um, yeah, and then I had a little incident with economics whereby uh, my grade point average kind of uh, tanked. And um, so I decided, okay, in order to fix this, because my goal was, so I went to the same university my dad went, which is the University of Toronto slash Guelph. My dad went to to University of Toronto, which um, Guelph, University of Guelph used to be part of when he was there. But when I went there, it's it's Sony University. But nonetheless, I'm in competition with my dad. And my dad graduated with distinction, so therefore I had to. (laughs) And this economic situation was was going to ruin that. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I know I'm really good at languages. I'm just going to take all the languages. So I took German. Well, I had already had German on the list, uh, but I took um, Spanish and, and I noticed that they had Latin. I'm like, oh my God, yes, put Latin down. And then when I went, so then then what happens is the minute you get into the Latin orbit of things, uh, the professors, there's only like three professors and two really uh, good ones who are like really interested in getting students into classics. The minute you go on your office, you're 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 a major. <laughs> you go in and you get sucked. We we call it the vortex <laughs> because we, we we were all cracking up because it's like people would would, would just uh, start taking a history course and if you see them in the next ancient history course, you're like you know you're getting too close to the vortex. <laughs> the minute you go to talk to Professor Matthews or Professor O'Cleary, you're gonna be in classics. And sure enough, <laughs> that's what happened. So uh, yeah, so I got sucked in um, the minute when I went in to. Uh, talk about uh you know just talk about uh latin and then i was told that oh there's greek I'm like you mean like ancient greek like yeah you mean like in the bible ancient greek yeah <laughs> like, well i'm taking that and so then it was after and then, then i was then i had the question of well, what do you do with this like uh because of course my dad i can't believe you asked idea. that question <laughs> well no well, we get the practical because my dad's an engineer right <laughs> practical concerns are like why are you taking this kind of stuff like right so what can you do with this like um well you could become a professor uh that was the only only solution they had right and i thought i had already decided when i was five that i did want to be a professor i remember that because my dad had all these professor friends over and they they were were mentioning something about a perpetual student i'm like yeah that's what i want to be and everybody's looking at me like this little kid she's but so I already had the idea that oh oh professor it's a nice nice idea um but I but I still had the law school thing going uh, but anyway uh I asked what and he said well you could be a professor or a teacher and then I thought oh okay and then um, who'd pay for that because that sounds like more school and um you know money isn't going to come forth <laughs> and oh you get scholarships for that I go oh okay so, I mean basically if you go to graduate school you would get scholarships 
right? And you wouldn't go if they didn't give you any scholarships. Uh, this is advice I, I, I would also impose on others. That um, <laughs> yeah, that uh, if the graduate school isn't going to give you funding, then you shouldn't go, honestly. Um, you shouldn't go into debt for this, right? And sure. Canadians tend to be adverse, debt adverse anyway, so that was not even an issue. Going, getting into debt for school was not going to be an issue. But the idea of getting, it would be possible to get scholarships to uh, pay for my education. Well, that my dad would understand. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, and so I thought, okay, all right. I'll, I just, so that the, I think it's because they're Professor are clear, but it might have been Dr. Matthews who said, "Well, all you do is you just keep going until the money stops." <laughs> <laughs> so I said, "Okay, I'll do that." And so, as a result, money has not stopped. That's right. That's <laughs> so, right. And See, so, Jackie, yeah. like your 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 trajectory is like so. Like I listen, I, I've heard this story before. Like Jackie and, and I have had these conversations before um, because I, of course, went to college and had no clue what anything was. Right. 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 Um, and I only became a classicist because you're the first, you're the first, are you the first in your Yeah, I'm first gen. Yeah, first right. Gen. I, I, I can't even claim, I can't claim that at all. I mean, my dad's I, also, I think my dad engineer. is in the firm. Yeah. My, my dad dad's engineer, but my dad did apprenticeships, right? He didn't do. Yeah, no, but I'm just saying not, not even, I don't even think my, I'm pretty sure my dad is, isn't even the first in his family yeah. to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I have, but I, didn't so I do have that advantage. Your advice, Jackie. I listened yeah, to none yeah, of your advice yet. But I do have that, that, that sort of privilege, one might say in that. I don't come from a first generation mm-hmm. family. Yeah, as far as I could tell, like both sides of my family, uh, my mom's side, her sister has her was a master's in finance or whatever. And um, so my dad's an engineer and my aunts are nurses. And so uh, yeah, so it, it, it's not something that yeah. I, I, I have had to struggle with the idea of uh, oh, Yeah, but we uh, did have the same trajectory into classics in a way because yeah, yeah, and I right? something else, <laughs> something well, practical, because that was well, because the... <laughs> you were doing the econ thing, and the econ right. thing was hurting your GPA. And for me, yeah, I was yeah. actually I entered into college as a um, I was convinced after I had taken this European history class that I was going to do mm-hmm. European history, um, ah, and I yeah. was specifically interested in the Reformation. Um, and, oh yeah, I love the Reformation. Right, the sort of like why would people fight centuries of wars over you know over religion between Catholicism and Lutheranism, like what's mm-hmm. going on here? So I was really into that, and then of course once you do that, you realize if I want to deal with that stuff, I have to learn Greek um, and Latin, and so I did Greek first, um, and I only uh, did yeah. re- Latin reluctantly because I wanted to do Hebrew instead, <laughs> um, but I didn't like the Hebrew professor, so I, <laughs> so I quit. Um, but I ended up doing Latin. But um, I became a classics major because I was originally a history major, um, but I missed the final exam for oh. um one of my history courses because i had tested out of the first like two quarters i was on a quarter system so i tested out of the first two quarters of the european history sequence and tested into the third and i had an a going into the final but i worked full-time at red lobster as a college student to pay for college um my father had a rule which was 18 and out um and so um, my brother was picked up the day of his 18th birthday which was after he graduated high school um, by the marine corps and so off he went <laughs> to the marine corps oh, and um, I got to stick around for a few extra months uh, because I was turned 18 while in high school. Um, but then I delayed my start to college so I could save money. And so they let me stay at home while I was working to save money. Um, and uh, so I was had moved into my new apartment um, and I slept through my exam. I lived about 10 miles from campus. Because I went to UC San Diego, which is in La Jolla, California, which even then you can't afford 
you couldn't afford no, to move no, in. No, no, right. No. You need to have six roommates for a two bedroom to afford it as a student. Oh. Um, so I lived, you know, miles and miles away. Um, and uh, I biked or took the bus to school. Um, and so I totally just slept through the final of my this history course, which I had an A going into the final. And um, I, I went to Thurgood Marshall College at, at UC San Diego and um, San Diego um, UCS, UCSD at the time was going through, you know, this was like phase one of the culture war, sort of like late 80s, early 90s. I started college in 93. And so part of the, the move um, at that time was to decenter Europe. Um, and so oh. they got rid of the European sequence. So I couldn't retake the course for credit. <laughs> Interesting. Oh. And you couldn't have a C minus or below to major. Um, and so, and I was too afraid because, you know, I, did, I, I didn't know what professors even were. They were sort of terrifying people who were really smart, super smart. And I, I wanted them to like me. And so I was afraid to go tell the professor about my situation. Um, and so I didn't tell my professor about my situation. And so I had two options. They told me I could um, take an upper level course on the same topic. It was like basically Marx uh, from Marx to uh, World War II, basically. And I could um, then petition to have it count or I could change my major. And I was like, well, I'm like knee deep in Greek already. I'll just be a classics major. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And that was like the end. And, and unfortunately, like I, I only applied to one graduate school because um, my, my professors were really great. They gave me this long list of grad programs and I applied to one because I hadn't seen my mother in 11 years. And so I applied to the one that was near her. But I didn't get in with funding, so I paid for grad school with uh, my first year and worked at Red Lobster. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so I, you know, and then I got funding and, and everything. So Red Lobster is... Uh, Red Lobster is like a very... Like, you know, this is why Isn't I don't... And also care. Nicki Minaj and a whole bunch of other people have the Red Lobster as, as yeah, their, their the, Red Lobster the, man. It's, it's, it's I actually everybody's success. dressed up as the lobster one time. Oh, my goodness. On a corner and wave my hands and try and get to the <laughs> That's food. awesome. Um, yeah, there's... <laughs> <laughs> You're that's how I became a classicist. <laughs> Your stories are so fascinating. It's interesting to me how the languages really pulled both of you in. And I'll come back to that a little later. But um, so now I wanted to see how did you get interested in this distinctive aspect of looking at race and ethnicity in the classics? Mm -hmm. Because when people think of the classics, that's not necessarily what comes to mind. So how did you all decide to go in that direction? Well, I decided because um, it didn't really occur to me so much until um, I did my master's. I have a whole horror story that I've told in a different podcast about that. But basically what I realized, because it was in the, I guess, late 90s. Late yeah, mid-90s. Right? Um, yeah, actually, I was just talking to my friend David in 97, right, um, uh, who I met when I did my master's. Um, yeah, and so what What I realized, so I had, was quite pampered, I guess, in, at, where I did my undergrad. We all got along. It was very, because um, University of Guelph is very uh, diverse and has a big international um third world program so people in the town and people uh in the college are used to having a lot of international students and, and students of color and and all kinds of you know it's, it's just like it's a it's a more left-leaning school and um it has uh, it's always been very strong on lgbtq things so it's a it's like a completely different bubble mm -hmm. than western where i did my 
MA, which is extremely conservative. The town itself is like a finance or in, in, um, insurance company center. It's extremely conservative. Notorious, the town is notorious for being hostile to um, people of color and uh, LGBT people. And so, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but I had no idea because I mean, I, I, it's, I grew up in Toronto and as far as I know, there are only two universities, the University of Toronto and University of York. Um, and uh, Ryerson wasn't even a university yet. And, um, and then I knew about Guelph because that's where my dad went. So um, I w- it didn't occur to me, oh, there's a school out there in London, Ontario. Okay, fine, whatever, I'll go. And yeah, so, so anyway, so I ended up making, I think, I think of, ultimately, I think it's a mistake, but then it, mistakes tend to work themselves out eventually, right? But at the time, I think it was a bad decision um, where I chose, because they appeared to be offering me more funding, because remember, it's all about the funding, <laughs> right? Um, and I didn't want to go into any debt. So um, they appeared to be offering me more funding than Master University, uh, which is down the street from Guelph. It, it's in Hamilton, Ontario. And the thing is that the people at, at McMaster already knew my skin tone. <laughs> and they already had met me many times and they, they really wanted me to go there. Whereas the folks at Western had no idea <laughs> that I was um, so tanned, let's say. <laughs> because my name does not tell you anything, right? Like it just says Jackie Murray. That could be, you know, <laughs> when I went to Holland, some people would say, we thought you were a, a big lumberjack guy. <laughs> the name. Canadian, <laughs> right? Canadian, Jackie could be a lumberjack, right? But yeah, so so there's nothing in my name. Um, and if you spoke to me on the phone, apparently I don't sound my my Jamaican accent doesn't come out uh, as prominently as say my mom's, um, and so they wouldn't know. And indeed, they didn't. And let's just say it was a bit of a shock for them to actually realize that the student that they had been trying to scoop from McMaster turned out to be a black student right and um and then the student they, they also had developed a culture at the at that university where the students the because they mostly had their own students in the, in the master's program and they had developed a culture where they would compete with each other in a very hostile way and it was very toxic I thought and and I was a, one of two people that were not from there and so then you know that was a problem. And then also like my, I do believe racism would play a big role in how um, a lot of the other students interacted with me at the time, particularly one, one arch enemy. <laughs> she interacted with me. And so, yeah. And so the, the, that was, so then I started to think, what, what is wrong with these people? It's like, uh, because of course I've, I've had black Latin teachers. right? So to me, I don't understand what, what their issue is because it's like, there's nothing, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an ancient world. It's, I'm interested in old things. I mean, I would study ancient China or ancient yeah. Egypt or whatever, if it was any, it didn't matter. Right. So it's just learning about the ancient world. But somehow I realized that these people are invested in, in this, in a way that's not mm-hmm. the same as I am in that they somehow connected to their, I don't know, superiority or, <clears throat> or whatever. And so that made me start to think about like, why, why is that? That doesn't make too much sense. And it, thankfully, or, or, you know, at the time that was also in the middle of the Bernal debate, uh, oh, Black okay. Athena. Right. And um, yeah. And so there was a lot of discussion about that at the time. And what I was surprised 
you know, because you're a student and, you know, the professors will be talking over here because suddenly you're at the kids' table and then the professor's at at the adults' table. And it would shock me how some of the statements the professors would make about um, Bernal scholarship or uh, whatever were just really smacked of, like, outright white supremacist racism. (laughs) I'm just like, wow. Like, I'm sure they were completely unaware of how they sounded. But it w- really struck me that, wow, they're, com- they're completely unaware of how they sound, you know, in terms of, um, you know, the way they would, 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 would talk. And um, so then that made me think, why do people, what is going on here? Like, what is the connection? And then I read Bernal and then that made me, okay, because especially his discussion of the, in, the sort of the entanglement of this discipline of classics and the promotion of colonialism and white supremacy, right? That started to make sense to me, right? Um, a, I mean, as I said, part of my education in Jamaica, which is of course a colonial outpost there. However, you know, there's a lot of anti-colonial stuff going on in Jamaica, right? Um, and so I, I would just say a lot of students, even high school students were a little bit more aware of, you know, there's, the music is also like anti-colonial. So, so that you're aware, even if you're not really you don't know the theories or anything like that, but you know that, you know, uh, there's a problem with uh, having, you know, British people telling you uh, that you're inferior. And then, of course, you're aware of like um, colorism, right? That, oh, pretty girls are always the, the sort of mixed fair skin girls, white girls, this kind of thing. You know that this is all going to be part of that. And so it all starts to make sense to me that, oh, okay, I see, you know, that now it's starting to, to make sense why um, why these people in my my cohort are so invested in um, in this and why 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 it's such a challenge to have me just like walk all over them when it comes to Latin and Greek, right? Which I whereas whereas when I was at Guelph that was not the case, right? When I was at Guelph, it's like everybody just assumed, okay, well Jackie she she seems to do the languages the best. Let's get her to tutor us, right? And this is what we did. Like we worked together. And it, it, we all got along, right? And so it was, re- it was really something else. And then there was a really, really horrible incident with um, my roommate. He did his undergrad with me at Guelph, and, and he's actually a professor in, uh, in Canada. And he, 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 there was one day where he went to, because we lived in the middle between Guelph and London, and his, because his wife was doing her um, PhD in epidemiology at Guelph, and we were doing our MA at Western. And so, uh, so some days I wouldn't go in because I didn't have any classes and he would go in because he had a different schedule because he was more into history. Anyway, so he goes in and he overhears the professors talking about me and we're dropping all kinds of stuff. Uh, so he comes back yeah. and he was just like, you won't believe it. Uh, we should do something. And I'm like, because Guelph, of course, everybody's like, Guelph is a place where people lie down in front of the, the, the public bus to stop the raise of maybe a hundred dollars on tuition. Okay. So <laughs> protesting is a, is a natural response to anything in, in well. So yeah. So he's like, we should do something. And I go, no, no, no. I, I think it, it's just fine. Let's leave it. There's nothing I could do about it. Let's just not do anything about it. Just, you know, I'll just do what I got to do. And so, but, but yeah, but that was a wake up call to both he and I that, wait a second, this is, this is a huge thing, right? And so we'd have these really cool discussions. He, he ended up doing, was really get, got very interested in India and um, the, you know, use of India in, as his, because uh, he was more historian. Anyhow. But nonetheless, the real issue was that, yeah, they just didn't want to work with me 
And, um, and they also didn't like the fact that I was good. And that challenged their ideas about um, who can learn Latin, who can learn Greek, right? So bear in mind, this is not all the professors. Like some of the professors were, you know, perfectly great. In fact, one of the professors, I uh, was uh, Professor Littlewood, who passed away, but he he, he, like, when I first got there, he was like, oh, Jackie, I've got a job for you. I'm like, what do you mean you've got a job for me? He says, well, there's a professor in art history who needs some Latin translated. And I figured you would be the best person to do that. I'm like, I just got here. He's like, yeah, yeah, but you're, I, I, you know, I saw your application and your, your Latin is very good. So why don't you do that? So he actually got me <laughs> extra money. And then I was just like, uh, you're going to check it for me, right? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so he and I would sit together reading and, um, and, and read my translation and, and and do that, but yeah, but I mean, so so there, 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 I'm not saying that you know everybody there was, but I'm just saying that there was this atmosphere that was definitely a problem, and that made me aware of okay, I got to figure out why this is the case because I don't understand, like I can understand racism, right, but I can't, I, at least I thought I could, right, and, but um, but I couldn't understand how it was attached to classics, sure, like it did, it never, because I mean I'd never seen it before. Right. Um, in my whole experience and up to that point, there was no reason to think that the, that the, the classics was at all connected to anything to do with whiteness. It sounds positively, you know, kind of 18th century in terms of, <laughs> you know, black people can't study these languages. You know, that that mm-hmm. takes a, a certain kind of intellectual acumen that they mm-hmm. are not endowed with. Oh, it's yeah. No, absolutely. Incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And my favorite and so, part is that it's Canada. Right. And if you ask Canadians, they're like, we're not racist. Oh, yeah. 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 We don't have racism in Canada. That's a U.S. problem. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the that's the, that's the other thing. Right. Is that. um there's all these unchallenged assumptions that some people have, right? It's not all, like, as I said, my, my growth was not the case. Like, none of the professors, never, like, and you never even got the idea that this was something that would be connected to anything, hmm. um, uh, to, like, any kind, like, to racism, like, right? Never got, you, you never got that, that classics was somehow connected to racism. It was only when I actually encountered it in connection with me being a victim of racist attitudes of the other students and some of the professors um, that it, it, and then uh, of course reading um, Bernal's discussion of what's going on in the discipline. And then I start, it started to click, ah, okay, this starts to make sense. And, and I think a lot of people are in my position initially, like the, the, the position before I, you know, had this experiential awakening, right? I think a lot of people that, that come into classics have no idea they like the language or they like the history they like the mythology they have no idea that this is the case and and you know you perfect world they would never know (laughs) like you know that they wouldn't need to know because it wouldn't we would get to the place where that wasn't the case right but um but i think if you're a person of color you are more likely to encounter it um than if you are not right or if you're you're from a lower income background you're gonna encounter it too because it's it's really about classics being an elite thing like something that you know people who have leisure time should do right people who you know who have you know plantations or have you know i don't know whatever they could they could sit around and read um latin or whatever and so you know if you have to work to pay for your tuition um or if you're a person of color um this doesn't fit 
into the the box, right? And so consequently, that becomes the uh, you you start you are more aware of how like the hostile environment that you're in than if you're not. Like yeah, so you're you're more likely to smooth sail um, and not recognize it um, until now. Like now, where it's it, it's more out in the open that that's what's going on. Yeah, I was just wondering. So I mean, that's such a compelling. Um, and very sad story, but I'm so glad that you really persevered there. Such a um, tenacity, such a yeah, what have been such a loss. <laughs> but Rebecca, so how did you get interested then in kind of this this issue of race and ethnicity? And I just wanted to hold up um, your wonderful anthology that I cite as often as I can, right? Race and ethnicity <laughs> in the classical world. It's its just been so important for me. Um, my own area, I do um, comparative historical work um, as a sociologist on race. And so that text has been so important for me. Mm-hmm. And um, sociologists are notorious for not going beyond the 19th century. Yeah, yeah um, and, happened and then we stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so having this, um, these texts in English, you know, for those of us who are not classics trained, you know, but I do historical work on race, so important to have those texts um, because I'll be incorporating that into my course on race and ethnicity because I want my students to be trained to understand, you know, what, what has been before, um, mm-hmm. because we can't really properly understand what race is um, if we're just looking at the 19th century. We need to right. really understand how did, how did different groups um, think in terms, how did they process difference? Yeah. And, and so this is an incredibly important area for people even outside of classics. And mm-hmm. so I'm just curious, what took you in this direction of looking at race and ethnicity? So um, as I mentioned, I went to UC San Diego. And um, so first I should preface, when I moved to San Diego, I moved to an area that was heavily like first and second generation immigrants from the Philippines and from Vietnam, mostly because it was near a, a military base, um, lived near the, the Top Gun military base <laughs> um, mm-hmm. in San Diego. But my father had also married a Japanese woman. And um, my stepson, my stepbrothers were, their fa- father was from Guam. So I sort of entered into this space um, and they were substantially younger than me. So I moved there when I was 12 and uh, 13, and they were, you know, two and four at the time. Um, and so I had, I actually was the sort of adult in the room as I got into high school and stuff when they would have issues at school <laughs> and things. Um, and so I sort of got to experience firsthand with them, um, you know, me fighting with the school board to get my youngest brother tested for learning disabilities because, well, this, their last name was Torres um, and no one understands the history of, you know, they're like, they must be Mexican. They're not Mexican. They're Guamanian. <laughs> Guam is, you know, was also conquered by the Spaniards and blah, blah, blah. Right. And then, of course, my stepmother would show up and she's Japanese. And, and then my um, father is this like, you know, white dude from, you know, whose parents came from Hungary. So it's sort of a sort of a strange environment. But, you know, they the little brown boy, he, he's just stupid. He's not mm-hmm. um, he, he doesn't have learning disabilities. He's just dumb. Right. Um, because I saw it, my, my, the older of the two has white skin, um, and looks a bit more Japanese and the younger has brown skin. Um, and they were treated differently in school. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was the one who had to write letters to the school board, (laughs) you know, to the school to try and get him tested and, you know, all these sorts of things. And so it was already sort of like sitting in the back of my mind as I went to a high school that was, you know, over 50% Asian Pacific Islander, um, you know, I was operating in a world that was very different um, than I think what most um, white Americans operate um, in. 
And um, my my neighborhood was, you know, seven, eight languages, you know, mm. around us all the time, um, you know, Tagalog and um, <laughs> Spanish, obviously, um, but just lots of different uh, we had, neighbors were from India as well. So just it was a really weird space. So then I entered into college and I went to UCSD, which I went to um, what was originally called Third College, um, which became Thurgood Marshall College while I was there. Um, but it was founded as a third world studies program. Um, and it was specifically targeted um, students who were either um, uh, non-traditional students. So first generation students, um, students of color, students who might not actually get into UCSD um, or into a UC school um, with their transcripts um, necessarily. So what the college did at the time is we didn't give out sports scholarships. They, um, every UC school is allowed to let a certain number of students in who don't meet the sort of the standard of like a 3.9 GPA and a, you know, 1500 SAT. And most schools like UCLA and Berkeley and stuff use that for athletes. UC- UCSD didn't have, was a division three sports team, didn't have a football team, any of that stuff. So they used that for this sort of non-traditional track students. So I entered in that way um, into UCSD. And the first year sequence that we had to take um, was a three-quarter sequence that started off diversity, um, imagination, and justice. And in the, the the first course on diversity, that was like the first time I read Zora Neale Hurston. I read Toni Morrison. Um, it was basically sort of this introduction to, um, you know, Madonna as pop culture icon, sort of like understanding the world that we inhabited. The imagination, which was the second term, um, was taught either by a sociologist, a historian, or an anthropologist. They sort of had these three professors who did the set lectures, and then you went into sections. And it was about the, the breakdown of Victorianism in America. <laughs> Um, so, you know, we started um, back in um, the 19th century, early part of the 19th century with, the, with at World War II, um, and we sort of moved forward. You know, we watched, um, you know, watch films, we read texts, we look at photography, we sort of did all these different things. And then in the third quarter, Justice, we actually read, um, it was all about landmark Supreme Court cases. Wow. Um, you know, starting with Plessy v. Ferguson and sort of moving forward. So I don't know how I wasn't going to be interested <laughs> in these angles, um, because that's where I was first and classics sort of came second. Hmm. And, but then when I got into the classics program, which was part of the um, literature department. um, So it was this like tiny little slice in this like department with like 60 faculty who did, you know, every language, you know, imaginable um, and and cultures. Um, uh, I had a a professor named Paige Dubois, who is very well known in the field as a complete iconoclast. And she was sort of like engaging in the hard questions about, you know, enslavement and antiquity and things long before other people were dealing with this stuff. And she's the person who taught me mythology. So, you know, uh, that's how I came at even like understanding the sort of baseline of understanding Homer and understanding myths is always critical lenses. Um, uh, you know, whether it's reader response theory, whether it's co- post-colonial theory, like I read Said as an undergrad, I read Weber, I read sort of all this stuff as an undergrad. And so I don't know how I wasn't heading in that direction all along. <laughs> and then when I got to grad school, of course, I entered into Ohio State and a very traditional program. Um, but I did have two faculty members um, who were really um, interested in imperialism and, and who sort of led me, you know, opened me up to ethnography um, ethnographic texts, um, in the ancient world. And so I feel like when I wrote my dissertation, my dissertation was on ways that the goddess Athena was utilized in tragedies on the stage to present and promote Athens's imperial identity. 
Um, so I was already cutting against the grain with my dissertation. Of course, when I finished it, no one wanted to publish it. <laughs> no one cared. Um, now people are like, it's such a great book, you know? Well, of course, because, you know, I just do the thing and let the rest of the world catch up. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm doing. Right. But I, I think because I came in as completely clueless, I didn't know the traditions of the classics. I didn't have any back. I didn't have the sort of Catholic tradition as Jackie had. I didn't have any traditions. Um, and I entered into this space that, at, at UCSD that was in many ways a sort of super iconoclastic um, and, and super um, critical, like very much into critical understandings of the world, right? That's where I first read, you know, critical race theory. That's where I've, all this stuff is an undergraduate, but most people never even like, know exists <laughs> um, in our field, in, in the classical, in, in, in the field of classics. So, so yeah. And so when I got to teaching, I started teaching at, my first job was at Howard University. Uh-huh. And so, you know, boots on the ground right there um, was, you know, engaging with the problem that we had an all white faculty and an all black student body in the classics department. Um, and where the sort of big name in the field who worked there, Frank Snowden, was actually really against Bernal <laughs> um, when his his ideas came out. And um, so it was just a very, uh, you know, fruitful environment for I was always very cognizant of who I was. And, you know, I would students would tell me things like, you know, because I, of course, I was 29 years old and I looked like I was about 18. And the students are like, if you weren't white, I wouldn't know you were a professor. Right. So that's sort of like the environment. And, and I was a classics professor on top of it. Right. So, so it was it was um, it was a, a really interesting environment for me um, to enter into. So when I left there and went to George Washington as an adjunct. Um, uh, shortly thereafter, one of the professors who was in charge was an archeologist and he actually did um, North Af- did the Near East. He was in Israel, he wasn't a traditional classicist and he had been part of um, the debates about um, Black Athena because he does Egypt and he does all this sort of thing. And he was fully like, no, Bernal's like, like, we all know that this stuff comes from Egypt. We all know this stuff comes from, right? Mm. Um, and so, when I finally landed a tenure track job, like six years later, <laughs> I was uh, given the option like of teaching courses. Um, actually, the year before I got my tenure track job, I taught at Union College and the, the chair of the department came in and said, so I want you to teach a course on entrepreneurship in the ancient world because it cross lists, it, it counts for the business school. And I was like, no way in hell I'm teaching a course <laughs> on entrepreneurship in the ancient world, um, which of course is hilarious because you're an adjunct, like you're, you're not even your faculty, you're supposed to like do whatever you're told. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. So I looked through the catalog of their courses and there was a course listed there called Greeks, Romans, and Barbarians. Mm-hmm. And it had been put on the books by a faculty member who had passed away um, at, at a very young age. And I was like, I'll teach that one. <laughs> and he said, oh, we were just getting ready to remove that because we didn't think anybody would want to teach it. And I was like, I will teach that class. Wow. And so I, that was 2008. And so I picked that class up and I ran into the problem of when you're trying to order textbooks, if you want to, you either have to order 30 books, you know, or you have to use Perseus with these like 1920 translations, which are super racist, mm-hmm. <laughs> super awful, <laughs> right? So I got the idea in my head that I want to teach this course again when I got my job here at Denison. I was like, I want to teach this course again, um, but I can't teach it that way. I can't just like make the students buy eight books and, you know, right. and I don't want to do it through like just through these like very few lenses. I want to really mm-hmm. sort of zoom out and get a bigger, much bigger picture. 
Um, because when I worked on Athens, of course, I recognized that there's racializing structures being put in place with their Athenian myth of autochthony and with this idea of immigration and how they treated immigrants in the city, because I'm a, a historian of Athens. I recognized the thing, you know, genocide and Caesars happening, like, and how they're sort of representing that. And I noticed, of course, very early that what we count, like how we view race and ethnicity in our world wasn't aligning with this. Stuff. So I wanted to sort of bring that into my classroom. So basically, in 2009, the project started where I started building a course reader, of basically cut and paste jobs. And I started on the small scale translating and sort of piecing together and ad- adapting other translations to sort of make a course packet that was a little bit more broadly. And that, of course, is also around the time when I read um, Ben Isaac's um, mm-hmm. uh, The Invention of Racism. Yeah. As yeah, much as I, I disagree with a lot of the stuff that he says, um, he's trying to, he's, he's really trying to make, um, and Jackie and I have had lots of conversations about how he's trying to define racism and such as mm-hmm. is really jarring and, and doesn't suit uh, the text as well. But he had a, it was like one of the best books I've read in terms of like really embracing the breadth of the ancient world. So I used that as the textbook for the course. Yeah, yeah. I've <laughs> and done that. You know, use all these sources. <laughs> and then I found out my friend Sidner, who was a you know a few years behind me, had finished her PhD. Um, and she was um, teaching at Temple, which was one of the first universities to have. And Jackie taught there, too. I taught um, there. Have yeah. a standalone <laughs> race and antiquity race. And yeah, we helped put it together. Yeah. <laughs> at least I, I helped put it together. Yeah. And so Sidner was teaching this class. And so I said, hey, Sidner, do you want to do this thing with me? <laughs> Hello, kitty cat. <laughs> um, and she said, yeah. And so that's how it started. So back in 2010, we started translating this book, which, again, no one cared about. <laughs> I got one. It was reviewed once. <laughs> Uh, no one cared. Um, and Max Goldman, who was my spouse, got roped into the book because I was sitting in my office just crying because I was never going to get it done on time. And so we just started handing him stuff to translate. And at some point he had translated like, you know, at least 30 percent of the book. And we're like, would you just want to be a co-author? He needs to get some credit. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you need credit for this. And so that's sort of how it came, though, is like, but, you know, the, the education that I had at UCST, which was like really steep in, in critical understandings of identity and uh, was really the sort of impetus for it. And I brought that with me into classics as opposed to doing classics and then finding um, this, this study. Um, I don't think I, I don't think I could have not gone down this pathway simply because of the earlier education um, and my sort of experience of living with my family and having to, to sort of help them navigate a world that was in many ways hostile to them. Wow. So I want to get into the nitty gritty then of how people in the ancient world understood physical and cultural differences. You know, as you said, their understanding does not align with our understanding of race. And so I'm wondering if you could share with us, what was their understanding? Were there, you know, kind of competing theories in the ancient world to try to explain physical and cultural differences? Was there anything even close to the idea of race in the ancient world? How, how can you help us understand that? Yes, yeah, so uh, I've identified about five different sort of theories, but they have sort of bundling within them. And then there are subcategories that sort of go to them. Um, but the, the sort of primary um, five theories are the first one, um, and this is what you'll see a lot in the earlier epics, things like Hesiod um, and these sorts of things, is like theories of descent and sort of origins of humanity, right? So, you know, you'll see that a lot in mythologies. You'll see that in um, 
in uh, Hesiod, like I mentioned. What is that race, though? Well, this is well, this is it's race and ethnicity, right? So, but oh, so okay, okay. we're just sort of. I mean, you and I both, you know, you you and I, well, we could talk about our our theory of race and how that applies to the ancient world. But in terms of just thinking about how did they engage with difference, understanding difference, um, right? Okay, okay, with people, yeah, as long as we're clear that we're talking yeah. about how they yeah, divided not, up the world into yeah. different peoples. So I think we want to say, like for Jackie and I both, it's very super important for us that we don't use the word race when we're actually talking about these theories. Absolutely. Um, That there there are bioracial theories that inhabit the ancient world in many ways, but race is something for us that's much more um, structural, um, and uh, and it's a it's more of a process and a technology for dehumanization and oppression than it is Mm -hmm. just like oh Mm -hmm. look this person has you know. A, has a cone-shaped head um, instead of a round head. Um, so, so I wouldn't use the word race to attach to these these five theories that I'm gonna. Um, so one is generations of humans, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with Hesiod's myths of of humans, and then also tagged to that would be evolution. So which we get the clearest sign of in um, Lucretius Book Five, um, mm-hmm. where he talks about the sort of progress of humans from atoms to to humans. Um, to to deformed humans to start and, you know, monstrosity and then sort of becoming what we understand as humans um, and then the progress of civilization, as it were, um, which is going to be a super um, important theory for understanding 19th century scientific racism (laughs) and how it developed. Um, The second one is genealogies of descent and sort of the origin points of human groups or people in the past. So here you have things like, um, you know, the story of the flood and the sort of bringing back of people by throwing rocks over your shoulders. That's not all humanity. They viewed that as only a certain subset of humanity. Um, and then mm-hmm. other groups had different origin points. So um, autochthony theory would fall partially under this, um, which is the idea that people are generated by the land that they live in. Um, so the Athenians thought they were generated from the land of, of Attica. And so they didn't see themselves um, in many instances as the same as other Greeks who were born from from the tossing of the rocks. Um, they thought that Ethiopians, Ethiopians rather, to to distinguish between the modern and the ancient, um, Ethiopians were indigenous or or born of the earth. Um, various peoples from India were also born of the land, and that the um, so so that's that's a subset of the sort of origin point in the deep past. But it, that's also a subset of what's probably the most prominent theory from antiquity, which is environmental determinism, which is the idea that your physical and cultural characteristics and moral characteristics are shaped by the the space that you're you live in, ge- geographic and climatic space. So autochthony sort of bridges that because people will be born with uh, certain attributes because they're born from the land that they inhabit. Or they could be shaped by it externally. And so here you have things like our text will tell us that Ethiopians have black skin because of the, the hot sun. They divided the world into climate zones. Scythians had super pale skin because it was burnt by the cold. Um, and then, you know, Greeks in the middle, you know, <laughs> had the perfect balance <laughs> of, of pale and, and dark. Um, or Romans later. The, the theory moves around depending on who you ask. Yeah, basically like the Mediterranean belt. Kind yeah, of. that belt in the middle. Right. And then you have, uh, they can also shape cultural practices. So like, why do people live as nomads or why do people, you know, use stone for houses? Why do they not? Um, then you have um, that groups cohere and come together because of shared cultural practices. They might not share descent. They might not share any sort of thing, but they they will cohere around a language. Like the Athenians are said to have switched. They became Greek when they switched from Pulaskian to Greek language. Mm. Right? So it can, can cohere around uh, language. And then finally, we have what we would call biological or genetic <laughs> descent-based ideas of blood. So 
one of the things that's important about these theories is that they often don't operate independently. They operate in connection with the other. So you can have an environmentally determined concept of autophony that shows your deep roots and ties to the land that imbues you with certain characteristics. And then you have to work to maintain it because it, it is viewed as a biological or genetic heritage. Um, and that's where you'll start to get into the potentials for race because they will use these ideas as justification for building class st structures um, that are about um, preserving the sort of notion of purity of the citizen body versus the immigrant class versus the enslaved. And okay. so you have movement between the enslaved and the immigrant class because the immigrant class is essentially, they're called immigrants because they can never belong to the land, <laughs> right? Um, they're always outsiders. And so if you are freed from enslavement, you enter that class, even if you like were born in that land, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So there's there's movability and, and Jackie can actually I think her her theory of how that movement happens is actually a pretty it's the best explanation I've heard, actually, which is why we work together. <laughs> so Jackie, if you want to maybe explain. Oh, 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 your, oh you want me to? Well, you can, I, I would say. <laughs> well, yeah. So, 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 so the the idea is that in most of these these uh, I guess this is where we talk about the technology or the the how race actually operates in in um, using these these different theories of difference or different theories of um, human difference is that the there's a dominant group that assumes it's it say the athenians will assume that they are you know they have all the rights and they are um what, what do you call it? their humanity is inalienable right and um others that are not athenian um are in either a situation of say of being having their humanity alienated from them or so they're in in, in a alienable humanity mm -hmm. right and so immigrants fit into this group where their um, humanity can be uh, alienated from them in order to get them to to uh, behave, basically, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so either there's a carrot or a stick toward assimilation, or at least toward um, uh, you know being fitting good. into the system. But yeah, be good. Um, and then, but then you also have the the a group whose uh, humanity is alienated uh, already. Um, and these, this, this is the, the, what I call the racialized group where they are um, treated in ways that constantly um, reinforce the idea that they're an inferior being. Their, their um, humanity is, uh, they don't have the same humanity, um, if any humanity at all. They don't have it as not even... Yeah, as the as a dominated group, dominating group, but also they they then function as a sort of uh, warning or terror tactic for the folks that are in the alienable group, right? So this could happen to you, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, so they, so they, so you need the system, you need a group that is alienated, right? Because they need to be the scary worst case scenario for the folks who you're really managing, right? Uh, the the folks who are similar enough you're okay with them in certain certain social or political circumstances but not completely you don't want to give them too much power um you don't want to give them too many rights but at the same time you need them to to be uh you know a, a good force in this in the society so so but in generally it, it, it's about pitting these different social classes against each other and um always having uh the possibility of having your humanity alienated from you 
Yeah. Um, so can I just and having and, and seeing um, it seeing it happening in yeah, front of you. I'll just add to Jack. So I work specifically in Athens, and there you actually mm-hmm. have a legal structure that that lays this out. So I have an article coming right. out on this. Um, yeah, and in, and in Sparta you have a similar thing yeah. where the helots are constantly being. Yeah. You know, there's ritual humiliation yeah. of there's violence at the core. In the Athenian structure, you have the citizen is actually in law inalienable. You cannot sell them into enslavement. Right. Whereas but the, the slave is. The slave right. is fully so alienated. And then you have this class. Right. Of like they could be as wealthy as any Athenian. But if right. they don't follow the rules, they can be sold into enslavement. Right. And so you need that's why I'm saying that's you need parent. that group. You need the other the, the alienated group, the racialized group to be the, the, the warning, yeah. you know, to so manage them. So you're managing this other elite group, right? Or other, not elite, but other group, right? That looks and, um, you know, is accepted in many social circles, right? But it always needs to be the case that, well, you're not exactly an Athenian. Remember that. Remember your place. I just wanted to um, just clarify for, for people who are listening that, so in order to be eligible for your humanity to be alienated from you, this was not necessarily based on color. No. Yeah. yeah. This is the other point. Because I just want to make sure that people don't assume that. Yeah. So this is what's really important is that, um, yeah, skin color or physical difference in general doesn't really become, uh, or isn't isn't as useful a a marker of um, who's going to be, uh, it, it, who's going to have their humanity alienated in antiquity because it, it has a lot to do with um, the the opportunity to, <laughs> for one, right? That um, the point is that you, you, you anyone can be enslaved in antiquity, right? It, it tends to come out of conquest or just, yeah, people being, being kidnapped and captured yeah. and sold. Yeah. So, so, so people can, anyone can be enslaved. And, and the, the stories, even going back to Homer, tell you that, there are ways in which people um, get enslaved. It has nothing to do with what they look like. It has what to, it, it has to do with the opportunity to capture them for slavery, right? Um, and so uh, the, the 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 point is that they you don't you slave groups will be very diverse. In fact, um, in fact, there's there's the, the idea that the helots are not one unified group, yeah, but, but they, the name means that they are <laughs> captured. They, the name means captured people, right? So they could be captured from anywhere in the world. So what you have is this motley crew of people who are whose humanity is alienated, but you're sort of giving them a, a sort of an identity, right? Yeah, and you wanted um, to make sure they stayed motley, right? I mean, we see this right, exactly. under yeah. the Romans where the yeah. Romans are very careful and so, or the, they advise us, you know, in their texts like Cato and others to make sure that your enslaved people aren't all of the same group. In group, right. Because it keeps them divided. Right? Yeah. The, the whole divided you conquer. end up with revolts, right? You end up with... Right. Uh, yeah. They're too unified. If they can see a common um, enemy in the master, <laughs> then um, that's what they do. So, so, it, so it, yeah, in, in, yeah, so the, the point is that that there's a the tendency that has nothing to do with physical difference. Like you can deploy it if you want it. But you have to run the risk of deploying something that actually might be a unifier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what that's what that's what I was trying to get at. So it's if you say that okay, only people of dark skin are going to be slaves or are, are going to be the racialized group. Well, that actually gives these people who may have no cultural connection whatsoever something to unify around against you, the enslaving um, group, yeah. right, or the, um, the 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 dominant group, right? So. 
So the, the logic is not to actually worry so much about people's physical similarities because of the fact that that could kind of would run against the operation of the, of the system. Right. Yeah, and, you, and you sort of think about it the other way, like in, so in Athens, um, sorry, I, I spent a lot of my time in Athens. So I think about, it. um, but in Athens, um, a lot of the enslaved, um, that came in, in when they came in groups that did come in groups were Scythians and Thracians. They weren't enslaved. It, it became a, it's a well-known thing that was marked is that their skin was so pale. This is a, mm-hmm. and they had red hair and they used, ta- they had tattoos. Um, this was something that is marked in our texts that we see talked about, but they weren't enslaved because they had pale skin, right. red hair. And yeah. Tattoos. And that's, yeah. And that's the other thing too. Yeah. Is that, um, yeah, it, the dehumanization doesn't come because of difference, right? It comes because we want their stuff. We want their labor. We want their we want we 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 want them to do stuff for us, right? And and then we justify why we are treating them this way by whatever we want. Their blood is different, uh, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but but I, but I, yeah, but I want to say that I want to reiterate that there was a tendency to avoid um, or avoid trying to claim that it was physical difference that is what make what identifies the natural slave. Even, so even Aristotle, who's actually giving us trying to give us an argument about uh, the natural slave. He's arguing against the idea because he says that, well, some people claim that slavery or enslavement is a product of the law. Like he's, so, but he's like, no, no, it's a natural thing. So he's going to give this argument about the natural slave. And, but he, he doesn't really cling on to, you know, actual permanent physical difference. Yeah. Right. What's really and, interesting about that is that when he means natural, he doesn't mean biological. He actually yeah. means they were they they lived in a country that had kings. Right. Yeah. So this is what he comes <laughs> up with as the natural slave, right? So 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 that so that's what I'm getting. So it's like the the idea that you would you you'd think about slaves as a unified, physically unified group, or you think about a race, a, a dominated race whose humanity is is inferior to your own, that they would be. Uh, similar according to what they physically look like is just like an alien concept in the ancient world. This is something that develops in the response to the like enlightenment um, and arguments about, well, uh, hey, slavery is bad. Like that, that starts to happen in the middle ages when you're, you're starting to have um, a, a drop off of slavery and people start arguing about, well, is slavery good? And, um, and then also the discovery of the new world and, and the, um, the black African slave trade. So that comes out of this argument to try to justify, well, for the folks who want to have slaves, well, okay, fine. Humans shouldn't be enslaved, but, but we found these beings that aren't human. How about that? We, we can enslave them, right? Right. And so that's how that yeah. develops. But you don't need there's no argument against slavery per se that is actually threatening to the uh, whole, you know, worldview. Like at, in the ancient world, that there, there are arguments against slavery, but they're not threatening to the worldview as they are in the Enlightenment. Right. And so that. Uh, doesn't then require anyone to come up with an idea that, oh, uh, there's a specific set of people who aren't human and we can enslave them. So t- you don't need that. But in later, there is this, this threatening view that, um, you know, engagement with the indigenous folks in the Americas and, you know, the, the whole 
process of rethinking what is the world really like and what are humans, um, who are humans, now that we're meeting this whole new set of humans on the other side of the ocean, um, that whole recalibration of uh, European thinking, that produces the idea that, well, we need to get, for the folks who want to have slaves, which is, you know, a lot of the folks, they start coming up with, well, we need, or we need to maintain the hierarchical structure that we have. And, um, and slavery is, is essential to our economic setup here. And so there are these people that don't look like us. Let's just make them slaves. And that's one of the things that's interesting. So if you want to think about how the ancient ideas sort of inform that process, Mm -hmm. um, that in the ancient texts, like Pliny and Herodotus and sort of all these texts that talk, uh, Catesius, they all sort of talk about the peoples who are at the edges of the world. Right. Um, their definition of what counts as human is way broader than our definition. Right. Right. That's true. Right. right? So mm-hmm. they can, you know, people who have like feet on their heads and people who have, you know, Potential. these are all still humans. And so when right. you have people who are raised on these texts, particularly on Pliny and other things, and they get to the uh, what becomes the Americas, they they are actually and and there's a really great book on this called New World's Ancient Texts written by Andrew yeah, Ford, yeah 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 where he sort of traces how these texts you know the ideas in Ptolemy and Pliny and all these sort of things filter into how they recalibrate um, this worldview about who inhabits it but the difference is is that we're they're entering into a space where they are actually looking to dehumanize. So what, right. mm-hmm. what counted as the sort of acceptable variety of humanity in, in our ancient texts is actually the, the definition of human narrows as we get into the right. sort of scientific revolution and, um, and all these sorts of things. And so I think one of the things that Jackie is pointing to too is that, um, so I've sort of made a flow chart for one of my articles on the sort of steps of race making, right? Where first mm-hmm. you, define, you define your, and I borrow this from, a combination of um, Falguni Chef, who's a political philosopher, um, and then Fields and Fields, Racecraft, right. and some other areas. But the, you start by actually defining your community. So, like, you have to, once you define your community, and I, and I saw this happen in real time because my students last year, uh, last spring, did a course on ancient democracy, and their final was to build their own ideal democracy. And the first thing they started doing was building in and out groups. Mm-hmm. Who gets to be a citizen? Right. Who doesn't get to be a citizen? How do we decide who gets to be? part of our place and, mm-hmm. and who's just here. So you define your community, right? Once you define who's in, you start dealing with the fact, well, now I've left all these people out. <laughs> right. And how are you going to manage them? Yeah. yeah. So Chef refers to this as the unruly because she's coming from a specific mm-hmm. philosophical tradition. Um, but so they're recognized as an actual internal threat within, within your, 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 right. and then you set about taming them. Um, how mm-hmm. do you tame them? And it's exactly this process that Jackie notes, right. And, or, that I, that I sort of talk about with Athens is you create mechanisms, whether they're social or legal or political for restricting and, and containing and corralling. And sometimes it's the carrot, like you can get special privileges if you assimilate in this way. Um, and then sometimes it's the violent threat, but the violence is always at the core. Even if you're someone who gets the carrot, that you still have the others right there who like, Mark, yeah, show you what could happen. The violence, yeah. What happens if you don't, then the mm-hmm. process that Jackie's here talking to is what we would talk about the naturalization process, where you then go through the process of justifying the system that you've created of in and out groups um, and making it seem as if it it's seem like okay. it's from nature. Right. And so right. This and is like environmental theory becomes really, really popular, starting with Montesquieu and sort of John Locke. Right. This idea um, and Lucretius's theories of, of the progress of civilizations maps very nicely onto Darwin's evolution when it develops. Right. So there's the potential for for this stuff in the ancient yeah. text. And, and this is where I think Isaac is really good in his book, where he lays out the the, the, the how the ancient theories are filtering into 
um, 19th century or 18th, 19th century <laughs> thinking about Mm-hmm. um different difference right um that they're drawing they're, they see that the potential is there in the ancient text right. to be exploited in this way right yeah. and so what we see happens then is that it does get exploited yeah but one of the things that tends to get overshadowed which i, I think what i do is is also how you get people the, the average person or the to think that this is natural yeah the race right problem. and so that's usually yeah so that's yeah, how did, yeah, because there's certainly the practices of treating these people um, as, you know, in the case of ritualized um, humiliation or whatever, all these different practices that do that. But there's also, you have to also convince people that this group that we're ritually humiliating is inferior. And this is where the, the cultural stuff comes in, the literature, the the texts, the, the art, civilization. The, yeah, the, 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 you know, the education system starts to um to reinforce these ideas and so excluding any possibility so when we get back to so the classical world for example like classical uh, scholarship they say you exclude any possibility or any kind of counter argument that hey there was there were african cultures that were um civilized right defining civilization in a way that sort of nice neatly maps onto european civilization yep. but that some and then con- that consequently excludes um african civilization right um uh constantly um having the idea that uh african in this in your progress idea your idea that oh, all civilizations progress well except for africans because they are stuck in or indigenous their, yeah yeah well yeah yeah because they are the savages we meet them now in our modern world and they are still savages right so they have they they cannot progress right they can't progress and so that that, that but it's just this, this constant argument and then uh sort of erasure of um or out of the canon or um you know impossible discourses of um that that show africans as not slaves in the ancient world right so that's another issue like every like the tendency is to think that well in the ancient world if you notice like i i like in my article i talk about film right where it's like hmm every time you do a, a show on the ancient world <laughs> yes yeah, spartacus whatever the, the the black if there are black people in it they're slaves they are slaves right there's never a scenario where the black person isn't a slave right when, when in fact in antiquity the black people first of all would be in any they could be consuls or whatever right uh so they could be in any position in the hierarchy and ethiopians or you know black uh slaves were rare and so like as slaves so um but Mm. you get the impression because it wants to map onto our worldview that oh in the ancient world black people were slaves because they've always been slaves so they were slaves in the ancient world. So there, there, there was, there were slaves in um, the Americas, and they really should be slaves today, actually, because um, you know, yeah. white supremacy. It's only because of the Civil War and whatever. And they're not right. <laughs> if you really want to go that level, but the point is that that th- this is not what the ancient world looked like. Um, th- there was no, as I said, there was no one group that would be okay. Those guys are always they're, Those guys are the slaves because they're the ones with the black skin or they're the slaves. They're the ones with the, the white skin and tattoos. The, no, there's no, that was not the case in the ancient world. 
right? Yeah, and I think we have and, to remember too that the when we talk about the ancient world, it is an incredibly diverse space. Yeah, exactly. Not just not just physically and culturally, but politically, right? What happens right. in Athens is not what happens at Sparta. Is not what happens in Miletus. Yeah. Is not what happens in Alexandria. Is not what happens. Yeah, each each Syria. community has their own social structures that we also have to be cognizant of and thinking about the contingency, historical contingency, and even within Athens, you might say that at some at one point. Uh, it's like this, but then 200 years later, it could be completely different. And um, this is this is another thing is that it's constantly evolving. And so when you're looking at, you know, ethnicity and, and race in the ancient world, you have to be, I think, important. It's important to think about the historical context, like what exactly is the moment you're talking about? And you can't extrapolate. It's very dangerous to extrapolate from um, one moment in time and then use it for the whole of ancient the ancient world yeah. and especially when you're dealing with romans egyptians uh, greeks jews Syrian. persians <laughs> syrians whatever like you're dealing with so many different okay. groups that it, it's it's you know and how the romans say like if we just stick to the roman empire how the romans deal with each one of these groups is different in each context right um whether they're they're, they're actually in rome or whether the romans are provincial governors in the east or whatever they're going to be different structures and but the tendency is to just like uh have like one monolithic understanding of of race that comes from our time period right like we're projecting back Um, i want to transition us to thinking about the what some of the legacies of this have been of what you're describing of this you know kind of imposing modern day understandings of race on the past and what that's done to the field of classics and you know some of your own um you know, unfortunately, negative experiences, Jackie, where there are just these kind of hardwired, it seems, assumptions about mm-hmm. who is suited to do classics work. Um, mm-hmm. So we know there's been all sorts of controversies over classics and over um, classical education. And, you know, Howard just closed its classics department. And there have been a lot of critiques um, of, of various people saying, well, actually, you know, this isn't really for black and brown people because of the, the racist legacy of classics and so on and so forth, um, you know, which which seems to be taking us in an even more unfortunate direction. Yeah. Right? Um, and so I wanted to ask, um, you have you both have a wonderful piece in The Undefeated where you address some of this, particularly the closing of Howard's department. And so I wanted to um, quote from part of this where you kind of cast an alternative vision. And I wondered if you could speak to what this vision could look like. You write, what if Howard reinvents the department and program as a Black-centered classics that carries on the tradition of its past students and uses it to position future students to be social, cultural, artistic, political, and business leaders? What if Howard became a leader in the movement to transform this important Black cultural heritage and liberate it from its white supremacist entanglements. Now, of course, Howard did not take up that challenge, but (laughs) everything that you've been explaining to us explains why this is not the way it was in the ancient world. So why are we so hung up on that with this kind of alternative vision that you've got? Can you kind of help us understand what could that look like? You know, so if um, a college or university wanted to go in this direction that you're vision casting, what would that look like? I I think that one of the things we have to do is um, recover the fact that there have been um, African descent people working in classics since 
classics existed, <laughs> right? So, um, and, but of course, they have been erased from the history of the discipline because that would, of course, thwart the whole idea that this discipline is really about um, showing off white superiority. So that's the first thing is to start recovering um, the black voices um, that can go all the way back to antiquity to the present. Um, also, in doing so, then you also recover the alternate narrative that, and this is where Bernal comes back into play, is because what he was effectively doing was um, trying to recover the alternate narratives, maybe a little bit in the extreme in terms of um, uh, you know what, what he was doing. But the point is, though, that he was trying to get at the idea that there there were all there are alternate narratives of how to understand um, the ancient world and how to understand um, the sort of uh, how Greece and Rome and culture actually the history of Greece and Roman culture um, and how and its interaction with the the larger wider Mediterranean because the the tendency had been to like isolate Greece and Rome as sort of the pinnacle of of. Of, of human civilization, and um, and then they they couldn't possibly have been influenced by these inferior groups, um, but also at the same time trying to um, suggest that well the groups that they could it, were interacting with the barbarians, the northerners, they too had some kind of culture. Um, the next step down, um, but what's interesting is that you don't get in this narrative. Um, they, they when you talk about barbarians say right it's always you'll get in your mind that it's always a northern european when in fact barbarians would have included people in the near east would have included people in africa it's, you know in fact the barbarians for the greeks were the persian for everybody in the persian a barbarian was the right they yeah so um because that was the main group that they encountered uh who you know didn't speak greek to them Right. And so the, the idea, but the problem is, is, yeah, there's only these, the, 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 the barbarians are the northerners They're in, you know, and, and they, they have some kind of interesting, glorious past that's, uh, that, that's re recoverable um, because it, it, they conquered the Romans. So therefore this is okay. And then, um, and then you have the, the Greek and Romans who are the pinnacle of human civilization and then everybody else is like um, the, the mud hut people. Right. This narrative um, it needs to be challenged dramatically by the actual evidence, right? That no, you know, Nile Valley civilization, um, Egyptian civilization was, you know, going together with uh, Nubian civilization, mutually influencing each other, you know, not less influence coming in from the north, uh, like, I don't know, Scythia into, into Egypt, <laughs> Then there was coming up from the south, from Sudan and, and, and Nubia, right? So, so, but no discussion of this um, in white 19th century classical sources, um, if anything, trying to suppress it. Whereas, but you do have like black writers at the time, black scholars, um, Woodson, others who are actually trying to come up with the counter argument showing, um, again, flawed in their own approach because they too accept this idea of progress of civilizations etc but at least their, their 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 point is that no you can't erase uh the history of um 
you know, you, you can't just by not looking at it, it's not going to go away. The history of um, African and um, Asian and even indigenous influences on um, the ancient world, you can't just wish them away um, by just ignoring them and just like not looking at, not even, not, not studying them and then therefore claiming that they don't exist. So, so a, 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 a revivification of the discipline, uh, a Black-centered version of the discipline would try to, as I said, a, bring in these voices alongside archaeological discoveries, et cetera, and try to try to see what the ancient world could look like. You know, the ancient, the Black scholars that were working on this and not just Snowden, um, which is the other problem, uh, is that the only Black scholar anybody gives any credit to are Snowden and Thompson, um, who are problematic in, in ways that, let's, let's be clear, they make groundbreaking um, moves in the discipline by a focusing on um, Blacks in antiquity. However, their assumptions are still rooted in that 19th century idea about um, bio uh, a bio-race that there is, you know, and, you know, and the Negro and all of this. And and so their goal is is problematic in that respect because they're they're not seeing they don't question the fact that yeah, and, and Snowden that, that race is a thing. Yeah, Snowden yeah. in particular had an agenda which was to because um, he was also a diplomat. Um, right, right. Um, and part of his role as a diplomat was to show American progress on race relationships after World right. War One. Right, right. Which is the uh, and, and which so is yeah. he's looking back to the past to try and find a place, mm-hmm. you know, before color prejudice. And yeah, it was mm-hmm. you know before color prejudice, but not in the way that he. He, sort he of thinks about it, it yeah. Packaging it um, really as this sort of way to um, justify American progress after in the civil rights movement, mm. um, as if that were sufficient. Um, and right, yeah, because in the Red Scare era, right, yeah. the, the, the main real challenge to moral challenge against the U.S., the, the, the Jim Crow and the segregation and the, um, that was going on up until the 60s um, in both the North and the South, um, the main challenge was the the lynchings and the the violence against black people, and so um, the the Soviet bloc folks could approach places, um, black based places, and say, "Hey, you should join us because look at America, right?" And and literally, this is the case. This is how Cuba gets uh, uh, in the orbit of. Um, of Russia, and you know, this is this is this is the thing. So, so, th- so there was a definite. Just as in the same way, there was a moral argument against apartheid in South Africa, right? There's a moral argument against the, the way uh, segregation and um, Jim Crow is operating in the U.S., right? So, yeah. So then Snowden is part of this diplomatic movement to um, to sort of smooth that over, right? Yeah. Which puts him in an opposite position to Du Bois, who, of course, is lambasted it as a communist and because of course he's like trying because, to Snowden did not have a good reception um at his own university at Howard. Right. Um, yeah. Because Howard is a hotbed of the NAACP. Uh, and and also of the Afrocentric movement. Um, yeah. Well yeah I, I would so, say they go together. So yeah. so one of the things I, I sort of think about when I think about um what would a black centered classics be is you know on one part, yeah, absolutely as Jackie says, you know, and when I was actually taught there, um they did have an Egyptologist on staff, but it wasn't someone who also was a nubiologist or um, moved in that right. direction. Much traditional French training, right? Uh, um, colonial sort of v- vision of Egyptology. But in many ways, um, for for thinking about it, is that you know there is such this rich 
tradition over the course of, you know, from the 18th century onward of Black classicisms and, and um, Afro-Caribbean um, traditions, et cetera, is that, you know, making those in many ways the core. I mean, I think for Jackie and I both, one of the things that we see is that, you know, for classics departments to actually really change, um, they need to embrace reception, <laughs> classical receptions yeah, um, as, as, a sort of, as a more of a core um, but also um, the ancient world, uh, and I and I actually think we should get rid of the name classics in many ways um, and move to more mm-hmm. of an ancient world studies, um, or as some of my colleagues say, critical ancient world studies. But part of it is, is that when we actually say the classical, we mean classical Athens and we mean late Republican and, and um, Augustan Rome. Right. And those tend to be the texts that get taught to students. Um, you know, Plato's Republic is the most widely taught text historically um, and universities and Plato's Republic, the, the Phoenician tale slash noble lie is actually a way that ju- it, it's the, the story they tell you to naturalize class and racial um, segregation. Um, right. So when that text was originally, it's being, not taught that way though, in, in but it was, time. when it was originally being taught as part of the great books programs, it was being taught right. next to Herbert Spencer's work on social. Right. Darwinism, wow. right? It was reinforcing so, like, as opposed to looking at it as a critical thing. to so, so, so a black centered classics would take these same texts and reverse those lenses. Right. And, mm-hmm. and sort of rethink what these texts can mean um, and how right. they, they can exist in the world um, in a way that is more liberatory um, and more critical of, of, of others. Yeah. But also, and so the idea is like we, the, this whole idea of like, let's cancel the Odyssey or cancel whatever, um, you know, that's not the approach to go, <laughs> right? The, the, that's that's exact opposite approach yeah. I do um, so. that and we're Jackie, talking about. Jackie will will back me on this because this is her thing is that the most diverse parts of the ancient world are actually the Hellenistic world. Right. And, and that's, world. that was banished a long time. And that they were banished, banished from the canon a long time mm-hmm. ago. Um, yeah. Because what, what's going to happen? You're going to have texts that are literature texts that are coming out of Africa, literally, um, or near East. Yeah. Like the why, do, why don't we teach Lucian? His Greek is beautiful Greek, but he's, yeah, but he's not Syrian. from mainland he's Greece. Greek. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so this is the problem is that no, there literally was a conscious effort to exclude out of the, the canon texts that, that did not come from the center, what we consider Greece today. Yeah, but even right? something like and Herodotus so, was, was Herodotus was tagged as the liar, right? The liar. Yeah, yeah because of course he talks about um, the barbar philos um, loves barbarians too much. Yeah, yeah, but also, but he also, but another reason why is because he says that Egyptians are black. Yeah, with curly like hair, the and then and and the, and, and the commentators <laughs> say, "Well, obviously he's never been to Egypt." No, obviously you've never been to Egypt. That's what I would say, <laughs> right? Because exactly. I've been to Egypt, and um, I've been mistaken for an Egyptian many a time down there. Yeah, so, so like that's not the, canon, uh, the case. Change how you teach and focus on these sort of black because as Jackie has uh, has been working on this project for a while on Du Bois, um, and one of the texts that he has is a text that's actually a reception of. The Argonautica. Yeah, yeah, the Argonautica. Yeah, explicitly the, the quest of the silver fleece. Right. right. Um but it's so yeah, so yeah, but 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 that's the thing. It's like so the Hellenistic period, particularly because I think it is the period that is where you see uh the most cultural diversity in the history of the period, because you have you know everybody's interacting with everybody in the Mediterranean, but also it's also where we have the the texts are in Greek. But that doesn't mean that the cultural identity of the writers sure. is what we would consider 
Greek, and there's a, there, even even in the study of Hellenistic, there's a tendency to always see somehow Athens as the foil. I don't know why. I, I, I always resisted, but there's a lot of tendency to see Athens as the foil for whatever's happening in in Hellenistic era, which is not necessarily a good approach because uh, why would they care what what's happening in Athens? when they're in Alexandria and they mm-hmm. see themselves as the center of the universe, right? So, but but in general though, you have these texts, like next semester I'm teaching a course on what's called Hellenistic prose, but it's basically the way the texts are organized is on Greek writers who are writing about not Greece. In so you've got Poly- Polybius writing about the Romans and the Carthaginians of Punic Wars. You've got Jews writing about Jewish history and Jewish religion. You've got um, people writing about Egyptian history. Um, people writing about Persian history, but nobody's writing about Greece. So it's like decentering Greece as in the topic, but the language is still Greek. So mm-hmm. that basically to, I, to show Greece Greek as a, a lingua. What happens when Greek is, Greek is a lingua franca text? And um, so yeah, so so we're gonna look, and we're gonna look at Ethiopia as another text. We're gonna look at um, in that. But the, but the idea, yeah, is look here we have the, that. But the tendency to believe, so there's an automatic assumption that, oh, they speak Greek, they're Greek, right? And unless, say, uh, it's obvious that, like with the Jewish text, uh, it's obvious that, well, they're talking about stuff that that Jews would talk about. This person must be Jewish, right? But everybody else has to be Greek that's writing in, which is ridiculous because we live in a world where everybody writes in English and not everybody is actually from England. Right. Exactly. Right. So I hate to break it to you. And I, and I think this is a, so, one of the things that's really super interesting about it too. Is that um, is that this is also the period when we have a, an explosion of scientific texts um, mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Real scientific texts. Real like scientific texts. Astronomy and and things like that. And so that's this is the thing when we talk about the Greek scientific real revolution. It's happening in the Hellenistic period. And it's being from not the- Greece. It's happening in Sicily. It's happening in 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 North Africa. In Egypt, it's happening in um, the Seleucid Empire, in like old old Persian Empire. It's not happening in Athens. <laughs> Shocker. So, yeah. the, but people would, but you think the, the common person who doesn't really know much about classics, if they know anything about Greek science, they think it's Athens. Why? Uh, there's no reason to believe this, even uh, because it's not happening in Athens. It's happening in Sicily, and it's happening in in um, Egypt. I mean, even medicine, which of course is starting. Yeah, Egypt again. Century. Right? It's, it's from Egypt, but it's in, it's on the islands. It's in the islands. Yeah, in the islands as well. They're not yeah, in Athens. <laughs> yeah, there's this myth that's created about Greekness and Romanness has to do with really about whiteness. Right mm-hmm. about um, European um, superiority, right? And and then what's interesting is in that construction of of white European superiority, there's also an occlusion or an attempt to sort of not really accept the fact that modern Greeks and modern Italians have to be part of that if you're going to yeah. say it. So there's a there's a uh, because of course it's really about Northern European phone Germanic um, yeah. Uh, superiority and then the problem of well what do you do about the modern Italians and the modern Greeks right because they they're they're always they're always sidelined in their ability to talk about their own actual historical um, culture right um, 
So that there's that as well that, that goes yeah. on. So, so um, I think to get back to the sort of, to sum up, <laughs> to kind of get back to our thing, that a Black-centered classics would actually be one that is way more dynamic, that embraces a much broader swath of the Mediterranean um, and of what- I don't think it has to be Black-centered either. I just think yeah. it has to be decentered, white white decentered. Yeah. Right. But, but like, I would say, um, even, you know, embracing the like at Howard, you know, I think importantly at Howard per se, that the embracing yeah, Howard, yeah. black mm-hmm. tradition of classics um, and, mm-hmm. and the Afro-Caribbean tradition of classics, um, it, 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 it's a lost opportunity. Yeah. Um, right. Right. And you see it happening like Temple's probably is, you know, picking up that mantle in many ways and, and other places. Well, in fact, yeah, in, in, in the debate with the, the Bernal um, situation, Temple was actually um, the first and probably the only one, only classics department uh, to actually go walk right over to the race studies folks, the Afrocentrist folks and say, hey, let's have a conversation about this. Right. And and they and then and that is out of that came the the study race studies course. Right. And so its course on race was a course that's built in relationship to actual race studies courses 30 years ago. Right. Um, when uh, uh, Dan Tompkins put it together, was in, in talking to the folks who were actually teaching race over there in the um, Black Studies program and working with them. And so, so I, I, you know, my main thing is that, so when I, when I was teaching with them and I um, helped develop the course, when I went to Skidmore, uh, the program, the, the, the course at Temple was so far in the field, <laughs> so outside of the imagination of what um, they Martin thought a course on race should be, Greeks and Barbarians, like the Greeks and Barbarians course that uh, Rebecca was mentioning. The, the course at Temple is is so much more now. <laughs> like it was now, like they're teaching what we, we, we want to teach now already back then, in <laughs> 2000, 2008, uh, 2000. But the, the, the issue is that yeah, why did they do that? Well, because they recognized the moment at the time back in the 90s, right? And so, well, let's actually talk about this, you know, because this seems like a, an important topic. And this is maybe not a, this is one of the biggest uh, historically black schools, though it's not a HBCU. It is actually a historically black school, a large black population of Philadelphia, um, go go to temple and so they thought like well let's just go over there and um interact with them right and uh and and, and they developed this this course that's all that needs to happen i think and is the the communication between classics and african-american studies needs to happen this is why i, I have a foot in one in both right like i i teach for the africana studies program and our classics program because i want to bridge the the gap Right. And I try to get students in Africana to come into classics and vice versa, students in classics to see the relevance and importance of Africana to classics. So that's another approach to this, the way you could do, um, which is what we suggested in the um, article. Right. Is that, well, maybe they could go over to the but 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 of course the, there's also this problematic historical problem of communi- no communication <laughs> going on between African American and, and but this is a classics thing too right because I, I remember being asked recently um how is it that you can possibly be in both African American studies and classics as if the two were antithetical right I was just like what do you mean like 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 literally I was asked this like how 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 does that how does that work what do you mean how does that work work I mean. <laughs> 
the, the, it, as if it was just like, you know, um, physics and I don't know, botany, you can't communicate with these two. They're not the same. Astrophysics and, and botany, they're so far apart. The, the only thing that is, is the, connecting them is you. It's like, no, there's actually long history of connection between the two disciplines. Lots of um, African-American writers come out of a, a reacting to classics, right? Toni Morrison, all like, come on. Uh, so it's really amazing how there is this idea that, and it comes from this idea of classics being a white discipline, that because classics is a white discipline, then obviously the black discipline can't communicate to it. I'm going to have to to wrap up, but I know that you all are writing a textbook together. And so mm-hmm. I just wanted to, um, as a wrap up, if you could tell us about that textbook and what your hopes are for it and what, what impact you'd like to have it make. Rebecca, you can go on that one. <laughs> So I would say um, uh, our our hope with the book, is, so the plan for the book is that it will actually sort of um, engage in in short chapters, like lots of short chapters, um, focus focus topics, um, going from like definitions for how these terms work in the modern world versus how they work in the ancient world, um, to different ways that these things manifest um, in the ancient world, or different uh, the theories um, of identity that the ancients functioned with. Um, and sort of go over all of that material and sort of have it in short, accessible bites, um, you know, 5,000 word chapters instead of 10,000 word chapters, right? Right, right. Um, that are student friendly, um, but then also engage um, for the for a large chunk of the book sort of integrated into that um, about these different legacies, whether it's the use um, for the construction of scientific racism, uh, the use of architecture for the construction of white spaces in, in different places and sort of the landscape of whiteness um, using the classical, um, whether it is, you know, we're going to address Roman and Greek imperialism. And then, you know, also in the 19th century, Greek nationalism and the building of the Greek nation out of Northern Mm -hmm. European desires for, uh, you know, a a white space that they can occupy, et cetera. Um, And then also focusing in on these sort of Black traditions, um, Afro-Caribbean traditions, uh, on and specifically um, on the education, the structure of education, and how education has been used um, over the course of you know the last two hundred years um, to construct a specific vision of classics that is a white space, um, and and then look at the Black classical traditions um, in education um, and traditions in India and other places um, where the classical tradition has been seen as a sort of gateway. Um, into success um, and into, right. uh, into, you know, it's in many ways, we want to sort of make this a, a a one-stop shop for, you know, it can't cover everything, but at least to, to lead people into all the variety of topics and spaces that these works occupy, both in antiquity and in their modern um, legacies, mm-hmm. um, so that people have a starting point for conversations. Because I think for for me, I also, I often make these distinctions, and, and this is why we talk about the Greek and Roman, you know, Greco-Roman antiquity instead of classics. Classics is the academic discipline and the sort of specific packaging of the ancient world that has come to to be part of, um, you know, the university structures. Um, it's not, it, classics isn't actually the ancient world itself. And right. so we want to make sure that we are critical about that packaging um, and reveal more of the accurate reality of the ancient world. And, and even though the book is called Race and Ethnicity or Understanding Race and Ethnicity, it's actually really just about understanding the ancient Mediterranean. Because <laughs> for me, there is no history of the ancient Mediterranean. Um, a more accurate history is one that takes into account this variety and, and this mm-hmm. thing. And so we really just want to produce a more accurate account of the ancient world. Um, with centering at first the ways that they thought about the world that they inhabited um, and how they engaged with 
human difference, um, whether it's cultural difference, whether it's physical difference, whether it's linguistic, et cetera. Um, and then the, the myriad of ways um, that this has been, these, these have been repackaged, repurposed in whether it's in education, which is the backbone of it, um, or in popular culture, et cetera. So I think that's that's kind of a summary. Jackie, you <laughs> had any? Yeah, yeah. No, the only thing you've left out is that we're, we're also going to have like case studies yeah. Yeah. to go with that. So, um, oh and, it, and it, yeah, and the idea is like sort of like a, not an exact supplement, but definitely complement to um, the, the, the source book that Rebecca and Cinderella mm-hmm. and Max. Okay. You can use the two together. So the, so the source book, yeah. So so the case studies would, would have extra texts that are not in the source book, I gather. Um, but you could, but they would be, but would be examples for how you could use the source book then to generate um, your own yeah. case book. We also like we're thinking about the case. Book. I want to have one on color, colored marbles and the way that the yeah, Roman imperialism kind of, was yeah. reflected through their importation of marbles from all over the empire, right? Right. Yellows and you know different things. It's like so. Yeah, we so it wouldn't be just text centered, but but it'd be case of, studies. Yeah, uh-huh. little case studies that focus in on certain, like maybe it's like a, just a, a focus on you know part of Heliodorus, and then maybe we have one that's on you know sort of the how, how Roman imperialism functioned in these ways to to give right. people. Um, uh, short um, examples that they can work with. This is outstanding. When is this book coming out? One day. Oh, one day. <laughs> it's, due, it's due to the press. It's due to the press at the end of 2023 or the beginning of 2024. Oh, we have Let's to go begin- Let's go beginning. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because it has to actually be started. <laughs> I have to finish two other books. <laughs> and I have to finish my, yeah, I have to finish yeah, a book this, this books. year right now. Like I'm working on a, a, a different book on Apollonius of Rhodes. So but it's all that has to be finished. Everything we're doing is preparation for that book. And then we're going yes. to clean the decks and just work on that book. Yeah. Next year I'm going to be off. Um, like I have the year off. Yeah. I'm off this year. Uh, she's off next year. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, that is, yeah. So that, it's coming. It'll be coming. Don't worry. That is very, very exciting. I'm so happy to hear that. Um, well, unfortunately, I'm going to have to wrap up, but it has just been outstanding. Um, well, this has been great. Yeah. Are just a wealth of information, and your scholarly contributions are, um, like I said, it's already been very, very helpful for me. My students are going to benefit from it. Can't wait till this new book comes out because I will be using that one as well, making sure that my students are using it. Um, so you have me already on the list waiting. Um, But thank you so very much. um, And I hope we can keep in touch. 